Don't talk about the floor this time. <laughs> <laughs> I need to talk about the floor. You said I need to talk about pigs. So I've got 13 piglets at home, but that's wow. fine. Well, you, have you been up at all hours with those? With those? <laughs> Not really. Pigs are brilliant. Right. I mean, they are amazing. I watched four of them being born. Um, you can always tell that they're, 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 I can tell before you get to them because they make this incredible sort of rhythmic grunting. So you think, yeah, well, Rachel had also said the day before they, she, she made her straw into a pile in the middle of the, um, in the, middle of the, the pen in, in the indoor shed where she's kept. And it's incredible. The little piglets just they crawl, they literally crawl out themselves and then they kind of nibble off their umbilical cords and then go around and find a nipple. It's just the most... It's like, you know, the, you know there's not a, none of this sort of mother licking it business. They just, um, they just do it themselves. Sounds that. Sounds that. Anyway, it's mesmerising to watch, um, and they are very, very small. But they, you know, you're wondering how many more can come out. And she had there was one stillborn, but there were 14 mm. all together, and she's only got 14 nipples. So any more would have been tricky. <laughs> this is the animal husbandry element of this literary <laughs> so podcast. Is, is something to reckon. I mean, you know, she's good mother. The big danger is them because she's big, sort of 200 kilo. Sal, you don't want her leaning on the squat. You can crush; they can crush them, but they do make an incredibly loud noise if they're being squashed. So, so she <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing cuter than a very small pig, other than thirteen very small pigs all gathered. But you together. don't. We talked about this before. You don't name them all, do you? Because you don't want to. No, I mean the boys have named her notorious P.I.G. Yeah, so, we've established that. And yeah. the, uh, the the runt of the litter has already got the name Piggy Smalls, which is predictable. <laughs> but no, I mean I, 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 you know, it's it's as somebody said on Twitter, well, how could you possibly? It was you, I think, Nikki. Yeah, how could you possibly you? eat them? And I said, you're right. There's almost nothing on them yeah. at this point. Right, <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, they are cute, but they become pigs quite quickly. I mean, six months there. What's your best pig impression? No, I think I can do the, the, the pregnant sow is the best one. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> giving birth. It's a, it's a pig giving birth. <laughs> I think that's enough pig. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the New Yorker. The New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, good, sort of good. Reading, early, you did that early. Can I just say, reading Joseph Heller while kind of having to go out and it was probably, it was, yeah, it was an odd experience. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Quite a hard was yeah. it indeed? Yeah. The wonders yes. of nature to, yeah, know, yeah. And, and family life at its, uh, at its most idyllic. <laughs> and they're not. Anyway, shall we start? Yeah. Let's start. Okay. Hello and welcome to Batlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the orange and sea green offices of a successful middle-sized company in early 70s Manhattan, mulling over mortality, marriage and the miseries of middle age. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is the award-winning Matt Thorne. Uh, author of six novels, including Eight Minutes Idle, three children's books, and most recently, Prince, an epic account of the man and his music, which is published by Faber. Also, uh, Matt is the first person I call in an emergency, and by an emergency, I mean the release of a new Neil Young album. <laughs> Some emergencies can be stronger than others. Indeed. That's a fairly regular well, yeah. That's why. Four, four or five times a year. <laughs> What's his response? 
He's great. Well, you can rely. He and I can rely upon to to, to come together and go. Is this any good or not? Yeah. <laughs> is, is, is this one any good? Usually, we can say there's one good song. On yeah. Record. yeah. We usually agree on which one it yeah. is. Yeah, well. that's true. And then, and then we get on with our lives. <laughs> um, we're also pleased to welcome the novelist and uh, critic Nikita Lawani, whose first book, Gifted, won the inaugural Desmond Elliott Prize, and whose second, The Village, was published in 2012 by Penguin. Thanks very much both coming in. Thank you. Now, the book uh, that we're, you're joining us to discuss today is The Other Masterpiece by Joseph Heller, uh, Something Happened, first published in 1974. But before we probe the underbelly of 70s middle-class life, we're delighted once again to welcome this episode's sponsor, Bloom & Wild, the UK's top-rated flower delivery company a company that, uh, as we learned last week, is close to Andy's heart. Anyway, just to remind you that Bloom & Wild send fresh seasonal flowers through your letterbox, freshly cut, hand-packed, sent in bud, which means they last for more than a week. Plus, they offer free next-day delivery across the UK and even to Ireland, France and Germany. And as a backlisted listener, if you go to www.bloomandwild.com and place an order, you'll get 20% off that first order. Just use the code backlisted. I, I was at Bloom and Wild once, and I have to say that they're lush, as we say in Cardiff. Right, switching from blooms to blurbs. Andy, what have you been reading this week? So I've been reading a novel that was published in 1982 called The Natural Order, and it was written by Ursula Bentley. Ursula Bentley, who died about ten years ago, uh, in her career published four novels. The Natural Order was her first she then published a follow-up, then there was a gap and there were two more in the 1990s. And this book had been recommended to me by several people. Um, I decided to read it because I've been reading novels by several of the writers on the 1983 Granter Best of Young British Novelist list. I just finished Midnight's Children. Uh, and so I thought, well, I've read Rushdie as featured on that list. I'm now going to read Bentley as featured on the same list. And... Actually, looking at that, before I talk about the book, looking at the names on that list, the famous names on that list, or the names with which that list is synonymous, are the Amos, Boyd, Barnes, McEwen, Swift, Carter. Rushdie, Mob. No, Carter isn't on that list. Isn't she? Wow, that's interesting. Presumably because she wasn't under 40 in Maybe. 1983. Maybe. Maybe. I think. Close run thing. But also on that list, Maggie G, Pat Barker... Rose Tremaine. Amazing list. Also, much to my surprise, I'm mean, looking at the, the people gathered around the table. Did you know A.N. Wilson was on that list? I did. But then I, I was... I, did I, you know... I Phil, have to say, I, ju- Philip, I judged the, 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 the... It was one of the judges on the 93. How are you? Oh, of right. course you are here. Yeah, so I'd sort of studied the form quite carefully. But yeah. Philip Norman was on that list. Yeah, very odd. Philip Shout Norman, author of famous, the Beatles biography. Famous novelist. Called Shout, which Paul McCartney calls Shite. Um, anyway so the list is quite and and there are other clearly other writers on that list but Ursula Bentley is probably the least well known of that list and uh, I found this story that I thought people might find amusing that Julian Barnes tells he says I remember lining up with my fellow young novelists of 1983 and after we had left our images in Lord Snowden's camera one of our more sardonic members remarked well they chose the best 20 from seven. <laughs> you can, you can, I wonder who, which sardonic friend, then friend of Julian Barnes that might have been. 
<laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. Anyway, the natural order by Ursula Bentley, this was compared on its publication to Beryl Bainbridge. I thought it was really good. I thought it was quite old-fashioned. Certainly, it has nothing of the fireworks that Midnight's Children does. It's quite weird reading them next to one another and thinking that they were both published in the same year. If you read Midnight's Children, I, I think you would... You would now Midnight's Children is 84, is that right? So they're published in the same, in the early 80s. I think you would read Midnight's Children and think, hey, well, this probably was written in the late 70s, early 80s. I think 81, isn't it? Yeah. 81. 81. Um, Whereas this sort of feels like it could have been written in some ways much earlier, yeah. yeah. And it really reminded me of um, not just Beryl Bainbridge, who I like, but other writers that I really like. It really reminded me of Sheena Mackay and it really reminded me of Jane Garden. Is very much in that kind of zone. And um, it's about three friends from the suburbs of Surrey who see themselves as a Bronte-esque trio who go to work in a Manchester grammar school for boys. And um, various uh, unpleasant and surprising things happen to them in the course of their first year. So the structure is the fir- these, their first year as teachers at that school. And teacher novel, that's yeah, a good premise. Yeah, she it's what female teachers in an all boys school. It's what she does. It, it, it's a, I can see you're, you're thinking, thinking of it as a kind of slapstick comedy. <laughs> yeah, it? that's what I imagine. And I'm looking at the cover and it says wickedly amusing, a new and original yes, woman writer. Pretend wickedly amusing. Is it sort of wickedly it? amusing, is Barbara it? Pym, wickedly amusing. No, it's more um, harsh. It's fun. <laughs> it, it, it's funny, but it's also. Um, what I liked about it was I expected it to be funny because, as you say, it, you sort of you think it's bearable. It's going to be quite funny, bittersweet, like it says on cover. It's much darker as it goes on than I thought it was going to be. And where the, the places that the darkness come from, very pleasingly, and never where quite where you think they might do. So there's a kind of um, originality of, of imagination with what she's done with that setup. That, that I, I, when I was reading, it, I was thinking, well, the prose is very good. I'm not quite sure why somebody would pick on this particular novel as evidence of that level of budding talent. By the end of the book, I sort of did understand it, that, that it works It works overall as a novel w- with a beginning, a middle and an end in a way that's very um, sophisticated for somebody who'd never written a novel before. So the fact that we can look back on it now and go well, she had this career and it didn't quite pan out and, and you know, she had a lot of personal struggles, I think, of finding space and time in which to write. What people said about her in her obituaries, which I had a look at, was that she was... Bill Buford in particular says, well, she wasn't a guy. And that... Thanks, Bill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the list, but that list, he's been... No, he's, he's specific. You know, he's that's the word he uses. Some women. Are there you know any women around? But he says specifically, it's not I just their guys. earlier, because in my head, when you, you're thinking of the early 80s, it, for me, Manchester culture is, is the same. Yes, who is the female champion you but, send forth yeah. against Yeah, But I think that issue of finding time and space... as we used to call it. Time and space to write is still working itself out, isn't it? It's yeah. still, yeah. at least there's dialogue about it now. But room I think back to, um, yeah, A Room of One's Own and what that means now. I think back to this um, short story by Tilly Olsen, I Stand mm. Here Ironing. Yeah. And in that, it's all about 
uh, it's, it comes down to the basics of standing there ironing and trying to think of a short story and the childcare, not particularly wanting to do it. And Jane, Jane Garden, we, when we did the Jane Garden book on the podcast, there's that amazing thing when she said she want, it was it's literally, she could only do it when she'd got to, to an age where she had, her children had, were, were no longer, she was no longer having yeah. And that's very common for that era, isn't it? Writing, you You're know. always seeing the logistics being talked about. It's always about stolen hours yeah, yeah, and the actual yeah, logistics yeah. of the writing and Absolutely. when do the kids go to sleep and yeah. I don't mind having a dirty house and the pride in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that time, you're always seeing these kinds of justifications, stroke, explanations for well, just, why it's so hard to write. I'm just going to read this paragraph because um, I, I, this was the... While I was reading, I thought, you know... If I gave you this paragraph at any point in any era, I think you would recognise somebody whose talent was really coming through loud and clear. So I don't want to tell you too much about the plot. I think many listeners would really enjoy this book. It's called The Natural Order by Ursula Bentley. It's out of print. All her books are out of print. um, And they don't deserve to be out of print. So I'll just read you this paragraph. Um, She has... uh, The narrator has just realised or is in the process of realising that she has developed, without realising it, a crush on one of her pupils, who is a sixth-form boy. I was looking at myself in the mirror on the back of the wardrobe as I spoke. He'll notice that, I muttered. He'll like it. It assisted the impression that another had spoken, that this other creature inhabited my body, and more particularly mind, and spoke in my place. Late though I already was, I backed away from the mirror and sat down on the unmade bed, staring out of the window at the top of the rowan tree that grew beside the front gate. A kind of flabbergasted joy possessed me, such as one might feel on meeting someone one had thought was dead. I had spoken his name, or at least his pronoun, and it was the abracadabra that opened up onto the full realisation of what had happened to me. I had been on the lookout for him. I had had his image on my mind. I had probably picked up every opportunity to talk to him. Had anyone noticed? I could not but think but once of Damaris and how I'd ridiculed the same state in her. But, of course, her obsession with Shackleton, with the boy, had been of a different order, a wild, romantic, proselytising nonsense, merely an emotional perversion of extraordinary sexual (laughs) frustration. I do not know what Damaris saw when she had looked at Shackleton, an amalgam of tender genius and steely musical intelligence, most likely. (laughs) It was not difficult to see him as the natural successor to Chopin, Mendelssohn and other beautiful consumptive musicians. But what I saw was the boy himself, flesh, blood, soul and, yes, divinity, a kind of divinity. As the thought came to me, I clapped a hand to my mouth and rocked with astonished laughter, and yet it was not laughter, only a cathartic noise. (laughs) Anne put her head round the door. We each had our own room now. It's 20 to 9, Carlo. We're going to be late. Yes, I'm coming. Are you all right? Yes. I knew that I must seem strange to her, transformed, possibly, sitting on the bed half-dressed, grinning at her in a way that must have told her I was already grinning before she came in. My newly discovered passion spilled over into tenderness for her. But it would not have been fair to tell her, to try her affection with the absurdity and the hopelessness of it. At that moment, these aspects did not worry me as long as it was kept secret. It was too new, too different, too outrageous and fascinating to depress. Nature's way, no doubt, of giving the spirits a brief holiday 
before the descent into the pit. Pretty good. That's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty yeah, it's pretty good. I love that descent into the pit at the end. So there's a sort of, this is fine, this is fine, this is fine, this is not heading anywhere good. Yeah. <laughs> Which and indeed is what happens. So touch of Belgrave Bridge, maybe, kind of. In yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Have anyone? Has anyone like read her? Like, no, 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 no. I was vaguely aware. I mean, I was vaguely aware. Of her. Rachel, when I said that I was reading this book on uh, Twitter, but this Ursula Bentley novel on Twitter, and Rachel Cook piped up and said, "I read this when I was at, still at school. I absolutely loved this book. Yeah. It was inspirational to me that that someone was writing this kind of thing then. Yeah. So, so it's not really, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a shit business." <laughs> hey Mitch what have I been reading come back come back so what, been, what have been, you been reading I've John? been reading uh, I've been reading a very short very short very powerful very beautiful new book by a Canadian writer called David Chariandi um, whose first book uh, was called Sukuyon and uh, this book uh, brother has won already won awards in Canada and it comes with, you know, comparisons to Juno Diaz and it comes with Marlon James saying it's great. It's, it's, I can't get it out of my head. It's one of the best short novels. I, it re- I know it sounds weird, but it really reminded me. It's completely unlike So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell in its, hmm. in its themes. It's about, it's narrated by a young black a man living in the Toronto suburbs, sort of crappy Toronto suburbs. He's working very, very hard in a store at a supermarket, looking after his mother. What has happened is that 10 years earlier, his older brother, Francis, was killed. And I won't go into exactly why he was killed, but it's a book about grief. It's a book about brotherly love. So the narrative flips between 80s, when the brothers are watching, you know, Dukes of Hazard on television and kind of dropping out of school, becoming involved in gangs. And then the present day, when his mum is sort of broken by what's happened. The eldest boy, Francis, is, has been killed. It is a simple story, but it's a book about growing up, growing up black in a city like Toronto. It's, it's a book about the filial relationship, the mother-son relationship is one of the most beautiful I've done. It's, as I say, it's very short, so there's absolutely nothing wasted. But, God, he can write. And you, you I mean, I defy anyone not to read this. The scene, the book is built up towards finally the moment when Francis is killed. And that is one of the best, it's one of the best scenes I think I've read in a fiction in a very long time. I'd go back and read his first novel. I haven't read his first novel now on the basis of this. But I think he'll be around, he'll be around for a while. But I'll read just a really, really short, just to give you an idea of the, of the, uh, the sort of the, it, it has the, the same thing of, I, I guess what happens is that, like in So Long to you, See You Tomorrow, something happens that doesn't seem terribly important early on in the book. You know, they, they make a mistake, they're the wrong place at the wrong time. And just the fact that you can do that and you're in a society where you're not seen as a human being, you're seen as a, as a representative of something. Um, and how these two bright, funny, witty kids end up in a tragic situation. Uh, this just gives you an idea of the, the writing and it's not, not very long. Mother's face seemed ready to break. She's just discovered the, for the first time the two brothers have come home and they're, they're in trouble with the police. The police have brought them home. Mother's face seemed ready to break. It's hard to describe, like watching a glass ball being dropped in a slow-motion movie. That fraction of a second just after the glass hits the ground and it's still a ball, but the cracks are everywhere 
and you know it's not going to be a ball much longer. It took another ten minutes for the next bus to arrive, and climbing on, Mother paused, gripping the bars before recovering. The bus headed off, the cooked-up fumes of diesel and hot asphalt as it went, the shimmer of the street and the world all around, a deep gut sickness, dizziness. I managed to avoid falling, sliding down the glass side of the shelter to the sidewalk. I don't know, it's just a lovely little... Um, lovely. I mean, it's a sequence of, of luminous moments. But um, you read, do you, you, Matt, you said that you I started read. it, yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, the first thing I noticed um, was him saying that although it was a short book, it had taken him a very long time, yeah. which I think is the right, right way around. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the old, um, yeah, more of that later. Um, I'm sorry I couldn't write you, uh, yeah, I'm sorry this yes, is such a yes, long letter, I didn't yes, have time to yeah, write yeah, you a yeah, short yeah, one. Yeah. I mean, as short fiction goes, I, I think it's the cumulative power comes, you know, the final third is, is, is pretty hard to read. But, but, I mean, you know, it's, he's a proper writer, so it's, he gets you to the end and you, it, is, it is devastating, but it's very beautiful and not without hope. Um, yeah, I, I definitely read other stuff by him. Let's pick this up again shortly. So we had a tweet this morning from one of our listeners Another Ian on on Twitter. Hello, another Ian. And he was very nice about the episode that's just gone up about uh, the townhouse by Norn Lost with our guest Lucy Mangan. He says some very nice things about that. Thank you, Ian. And then he says, another good one. My faves are always the ones on once massive, now forgotten authors familiar from secondhand shelves. Open brackets. My least faves are the ones on cognoscenti acclaimed but unknown to the masses works about unlikable people. So, Ian, you might want to fast forward to the end of this particular podcast. Not the cognoscenti bit necessarily. We're talking about a novel with a, with a very current issue of likability in fiction is that will be at the forefront of our minds. <laughs> Something Happened by Joseph Heller. This is the novel that uh, people who, who love Catch-22... Generally, in my experience, I, I, I did a, a straw poll in the office and three people in the office had started this book and abandoned it before page 100 because they just couldn't deal with the, the unpleasantness of the narrator, the narrator who is a sort of early middle-aged, natalie-dressed, middle-management, early-70s New York executive. I, I'm, I want to say immediately, before we ask the traditional question about where you first came across the novel, that I have to say, particularly to Matt, who chose this book, that a very, I found this the most stressful novel I've ever read. <laughs> not, not, not one of them. I was thinking as I was reading it, I've, I've never read a novel that stressed me out like this. Why, Why has Matt made me read this? <laughs> what, yeah. what does he want me to know about myself? It was re- I thought it was an incredible experience I, I said to, to you, read it. I said to you on, on uh, email earlier in the week, it's, five, it's 570 uh, pages of being in the head of really, really difficult, complicated, unpleasant human being. But we're going to talk more about what, why... Just sorry, to answer that stress point, I just thought it was quite interesting that on the back of the book, you've got Mr Mark Lawson saying it's the most reassuring book he's ever read. Yeah, I've so seen that. Right. I've seen that. The polar opposite. Yeah. Of where, Matt, did you first come across Something Happened? OK, so I was on holiday and I was about 11 years old and I think I was somewhere terrible like Swanage... And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, my dad had let me go over to the sort of second-hand bookstore and uh, I had a pound coin and I bought this, this Something Happened book and I took it back to him and I said, Dad, I've bought this, 
this book about a man who works in an insurance agency. He works in an insurance agency. He was a systems analyst at an insurance agency. He said, why on earth, why on earth have you bought this book? Uh, it sounds like the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> and I, you know, I love, I've, I've always loved as a kid the idea of working in an office. And it was something that I've gone on to write about. So I was really enjoyed the idea of reading to him. Oh, look, all these funny things that are happening in the office. And he's going, well, that sounds like my job. That doesn't sound fun. That's, there's nothing exciting about being working in an insurance company and having all these office politics going on and all the rest of it. But for me, it was absolute catnip you know it was really exciting to sort of see that adult world at and 11 yeah of course you were <laughs> that, and you brought with you is that that the is the copy yeah because yeah, i knew nikita would be like no you didn't win not when you're 11 so that's the that's the copy no i couldn't believe that you did it when you were 11 i also love that whenever you have a dad anecdote it always fulfills its potential it's always brilliant whenever Sean has a dad anecdote. Well, for the rest it's of the good. holiday, I sort of sat there, you know, reading it alongside him, and he'd look over occasionally, and it would be, you know, well, strange descriptions. Let's part. I, I think we need to look. There's a, we could just spend an hour talking about the effects <laughs> of this book on an 11 year old child, but we'll come back to it. Yeah. So, you um, have very kindly. You've read Hella before, right? You hadn't read this book before, but you read Hella before. When did you? Can you remember when you first read Hella, or what you read? Yeah, I can remember it quite well. Actually, it was Catch Twenty Two, and it was when I was nineteen. I was just—it was just around my nineteenth birthday, which was in the summer holidays after my first year at university, and I was studying medicine, but unsuccessfully. It wasn't going very well. <laughs> And um, I kept trying to study in medicine, <laughs> but it didn't work. Yeah. And um, and so I in that summer holidays, I was supposed to be um, studying medicine and dissecting and doing those kinds of important things for a first year medic. And instead, I would go to the library a lot to the humanities library, which seemed impossibly exotic to yeah. me as a medical student. And I, I, I attempted a sort of nerdish read the canon yeah. <laughs> you know, so I would just go through yeah, yeah. the grades. And so I read it quite quickly in a day or two because wow. of because of the approach, which was a sort of speed reading, not I wouldn't recommend okay. it. Right, yeah. Approach. Um but I thought I've got the gist of it. I understand what the fuss is about. Okay, Henry Honestly. Miller next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um did you um... I didn't go back to it, but I have to say I preferred this book to Catch twenty two. Really? Controversial. Maybe it's just that I'm older. Jonathan Franson. We might yeah. take a vote. It we might, might just be that I'm older. The, we might take a vote at the end. Yeah. Of, and and maybe even share it with listeners what the result is. But I think age has got yeah. a lot to do with it. So re- reading it now is very mm. different from being nineteen and obviously Matt being eleven. <laughs> but eleven <laughs> is interesting because it yeah. just it does strike me that I mean for you to have got on it at all at eleven, it does tell you something about Heller's language in this book. Yes. Although it is you know, one of the, I th- think also I was pretty traumatised by reading it, and I've but I have come to the view that it is a, a, a truly great novel, um, though difficult. <laughs> uh, but the language is—it's the, the, the language is, is absolutely. I think it, it's one of it, is it um, in Vonnegut's review where he said it's you know cut like a diamond. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's, yeah. It, it's there's not a lot of we'll get some readings from it, but. There's not a lot of slack in this book, although it's so long. So we catch twenty. Did you read Catch Twenty Two, Matt? After something happened, I didn't read Catch Twenty Two to much later on. I went on to the next one, Good as Gold, which is sort of 
uh, another standard kind of comic novel. It's about a, a novelist who goes to work in the White House, or a non-fiction writer who goes to work into a White House. And it didn't, I didn't do anything for me. It just felt very wisecracking, very, you know, that kind of humour, the same humour as, as Catch-22. And so when I went back and looked at Catch-22, I didn't really like that either. So it was a long time, actually, before I, I uh, started reading Catch 20, before I read Catch 22, and I've never really felt the same sort of affinity for I, it that I have with this one. I, I'm going to give you, Mike, everyone's got a Catch 22 story. I think Catch 22 is one of those books that you either... I do think the world seems to be divided into, let's give it a Heller-esque for, formulation, the two types of people, those who pick up Catch 22 and can read it straight through, and those like me who just... I, I tried to start it half a dozen times. I know where, I can tell you exactly where, I, but I always say about Catch-22, it took me 22 years to read it, one year, <laughs> one year for every catch. You know, I, I, I started reading it in a hotel room in Pitlochry in Scotland the week after my dad died in 1985 because we had a holiday booked and it was in the keeping with our family that we that we carried on regardless. So we went on this holiday, which was quite a weird... I now think it was a weird thing to do. But anyway, we went on the holiday. And I had the book with me that I'd bought to read to cheer me up. And <laughs> I started reading Catch-22 in a hotel room. And I finished it 22 years later on the top of a number 12 bus in Notting Hill Gate in London. I mean, I did go back and start it again several times. It's, it's I, I found I think does probably remember. I, I, I found that I you have to get to about... What I discovered about it was you have to get to about page 75, and no pun intended, something happens <laughs> on about page 75 of Catch-22, and then I sort of thought, OK, this is like a map. Yeah. This is like a terrain yeah. with, with each chapter is a light in a different place on the map, lighting up a different thing, and that's how he wants to tell you the story. Um, I'd, I'd love to read it again, actually. I, I was hoping I'd have time, but I, I didn't to, to do it for this podcast. But then, I'd have, you know, I think in a way it's, it's, it is a fun, I think it's a fundamentally different book mm. from Something mm. Happened. I, I, I'm not sure. Very what, different. I'm not sure what the hell Something Happened is. It's, I feel like having read it, something has definitely happened. I, I, you know, when I said I'm not sure I could ever read it again, I've revised that opinion since we had that yeah, yeah. exchange. Yeah. It might be really nice to just hear the beginning, sort of the beginning of the book. Yeah, um, shall I read? it's not the very beginning, but but you were saying it's the first bit. That yeah, Heller, wrote. Heller tended to. Heller said that what he did was when he wrote a novel, he would wait to come up with the same thing happened with Catch Twenty Two. He would wait to come up with a phrase or a paragraph that even if he didn't understand where it would go. It, he was so inspired by it, it would push him through writing the rest of the novel to back it up. And so this came to him, he wrote it down, he said, and then spent the next 12 years <laughs> backing it up. Well, as you know, one of the things about the book is that it, it sort of runs on endlessly, so I'll, I'll go until I find a natural end point because it doesn't feel as if one's right. there particularly. In the office in which I work, there are five people of whom I am afraid. Each of these five people is afraid of four people, excluding overlaps, for a total of 20. And each of those 20 people is afraid of six people, making a total of 120 people who are feared by at least one person. Each of these 120 people is afraid of the other 119, and all of these 145 people are afraid of the 12 men at the top of the company who helped found and build it and now own and direct it. All these 12 men are elderly now and drained by time and success of energy and ambition. Many have spent their whole lives here. 
They seem friendly, slow and content when I come upon them in the halls. They seem dead and are always courteous and mute when they ride with others in the public elevators. They no longer work hard. They hold meetings, make promotions and allow their names to be used on announcements that are prepared and issued by somebody else. Nobody is sure anymore who really runs the company, not even the people who are credited with running it, but the company does run. Sometimes these 12 men at the top work for the government for a little while. They don't seem interested in doing much more. Two of them know what I do and recognise me because I've helped them in the past and they have been kind enough to remember me, although not, I am sure, by name. They inevitably smile when they see me and say, how are you? I inevitably nod and respond, fine. <laughs> oh. So, I mean, immediately, it, it it does sound like it does sound in a way like a, a, a satirical comic novel. Yeah, he, he does. You can hear even in the beginning yeah. of the book. He, it's the thing that happens again and again and again when I was reading this. I thought this is amazing. There's this kind of mesmerizingly yeah. dull, yeah, parade of process. Yes, right. Yes, yes. And then he drops into it one as a writer, one mot juste yeah, after yes, another. Yes. So that was pretty neutral. Yes. As a piece of prose, yeah. apart from every so often, he, he, he drops in just one word for flavour. Yeah. And he it, keeps it up. He just keeps I mean, going but, and keeps going. But there's a, there is that sort of feeling, isn't there, of, of just, it's just like sort of milk on the turn, always through the book, you know, you just, <laughs> it's just, it's, it, 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 you can't relax into it. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking, it's, I was thinking about, you know, voice, because it's all in, you six five 500, 60 pages in, in this voice, thinking about Richard Ford and Frank Bascom and how luxuriant it is mm, to be mm. in Bascom's voice. Being in the head of Bob Slocum is not... <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's hard to relax. I mean, it's, it, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, he, he does the same thing with pace as he does with the Mojust, in that every time you're involved in the processes of the office, he'll go and do something very weird, like get very angry with the person who's wearing the wrong outfit yes, and imagine yeah, yeah. Like beating it, him up, yeah. even though he's a cripple, as he calls him. Yeah, and, yeah, um, I kick him the leg. I, 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 I admired that mastery of pace, but on... On how luxuriant it is to be in the voice, for me, it, it felt like it, it's so self-aware. He's so self-aware about all of his horribleness. It's like a kamikaze sort of um, need to confess, isn't mm. it? That's mm. Yeah, thing. it's somewhere it's like between a confession. Help, he cannot help but tell you everything yes. yeah. in his head as it's happening. But at is... the same time, you're, you're focused on every bit of language because you think something important's coming up. It's one of those books <laughs> where, where not very much is happening all the whole time. Um, and it's different. That's yeah. what I don't like about Catch-22 or Good as Gold so much is that it's an obvious joke rhythm. It's like, here you are, here's the punchline, here's the setup. And something happens, you don't know where the important details are well, going to come. The, the, I would the, agree with got, that, yeah. We've got a clip from Heller here. This interview was done in the mid-'70s. I think this was done just after the publication of Something Happened. It's a terrific uh, interview. Um, and this is a clip where he talks about both the title and the idea of Something Happened. In Something Happened, there is nothing specific that I give that enables Slocum to recognize as the source of danger. And there's a vague source of anxiety. Slocum does not know what it is that has brought him to this position in life where he has everything he's always wanted and yet feels a sense of loss, a sense of loneliness, an inability to... Uh, uh, to thrive emotionally. Now, one thing Yossarian does have is he is emotionally expressive. Uh, he, he, he's sensitive. 
uh, he has appetites. Uh, uh, Bob Slocum is almost impoverished. And and the, the reason that uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, 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 care in my choosing the title, something happened. Uh, something is such a vague word. Slocum is trying to find out what did happen to him. What happened to that little boy I used to be? Uh, and he can't find out. In fact, I've constructed the book in a way so that no one interpretation would explain it. And that, I think, is the uh, contemporary condition. I mean, but it, it one of the senses of this book, I think, at the time was that he'd gone loopy. You know, that it'd taken him such a long time to write this book after Catch-22. It was 13 years. And, and the idea that this was Joseph Heller you know, writing fairly autobiographically in a kind of crazy way. And I think you can tell from what he was saying. I think it sounded genuine. I know writers sometimes lie about, you know, their, their intent, but that sounded like he genuinely had thought about him as a character and thought about that voice, even though you don't really see that in the book. It feels very artless. It's sort of deliberately artless. Yeah, what's interesting for me is that it feels somewhere between a confession and a talking cure, as though it's a, an act of therapy mm. and that he can take control of his life. Or, or you feel it's so artfully bound up with Heller that, you know, Heller might be in the act of creating art, taking control of something. Um, because there's a lot of this Freudian stuff that he tries to stitch together, a constellation that goes from parent to child to parent again and again and again, as though he's trying to work out who that little boy is. He's got a little boy. The little boy's crucial to the plot um, and where he comes out. And one of the things that... I thought when I was reading it is I didn't actually find the voice repellent, even though it's no. so misogynist, homophobic and racist, and he assumes that all the readers he has are misogynist, homophobic and racist. Slocum. Um, yeah. Slocum yeah. assumes yeah. that as he tells the story. And um, it's that feeling of being allowed to be those things or to be allowed to be the worst parts of the self. I, you asked me earlier, why was it stressing me out? I felt I was being confronted with a parade of my least attractive exactly. traits. Yeah. My, my yeah. own humanity it at its worst was be, yeah. had been dragged out and put in front of me. In some sort of a bizarre display of honesty and yeah, self-awareness. But also, also <laughs> in a kind of... Um, he does this wonderful thing of sliding from subject to subject. Yeah. And sometimes, like we were saying earlier, you've got a bit, haven't you, Nikki? We must read this bit. There are, there are um, transcriptions of family arguments. He has a wife and two children, <laughs> which contain not only the dialogue between Slocum, his wife, his daughter, his son, but not his second son. We will... We will perhaps talk about that at some point as well. But also Slocum's analysis of every parry and jab that each family member makes in the row, right? The need to win. Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> it's so painful. It's so painful. What I find so poignant about those sections are that, I mean, this section that I'll read now is from a conversation with his daughter. And you, even though it's a big argument and he's constantly having arguments with her about, as he says, everything from money, smoking, sex, marijuana, late hours, dirty words, schoolwork, drugs, blacks, freedom, hers and insults to my wife. Even though he's always having these arguments, I feel like he could really get on with her. Mm. And it's a tragedy. They're, 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 they're kind of good they? friends. Yes. And she keeps coming and saying, why aren't you interested in me? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then they have this parrying good time but it's all done in argument. And in this section, 
so he says that he, you know, he argues with her about those things that I just listed. And then he says, what will you do, she will ask baitingly, if I come home with a black boyfriend? This is a peculiarly ingenious stroke of hers that requires lightning dexterity to counter and with which she does succeed in confounding and vanquishing my wife. There is no way out and I am tempted to award her accolades. If I tell her I'd object, I'm a racist. If I tell her I wouldn't, I have no regard for her. My wife succumbs by taking her seriously. I survive by skirting the trap. I would still ask you to clean up your room, I reply, nimbly, <laughs> and to stop reading my mail and showing my bank statements to your friends. And then he says, of course I'm a racist. And so is she, who the devil isn't. And I think he's asking the reader those questions all the time. So who wouldn't, if you were a white male who was works high up in an office, want to go and fumble someone in the storeroom yes. again and again? And here you are, let's do it together. You know, it's an no, odd no, no, relationship. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Because a lot of it, you know, you don't know whether he's trying to reflect the period of the time or is actually reflecting the period of the time yes. or, you know, whether he's deliberately trying to be offensive. So some of the time you're, you're reading it and you can think, OK, I can go along with that. And then suddenly they're all off sleeping with prostitutes and, yeah. you know, and you're thinking, well, how, is this something that he's actually accurately like reflecting? Or, like yes, yes. We should say that one of the things that's fascinating about this book is that it was um, tremendously commercially successful. Really? Uh, that it wow. didn't ju- it didn't just go straight to number one and then fall out two weeks later after people started trying to read it and couldn't get on with it. It stayed at number one for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, I would have thought it presents a, an almost unique challenge to any publisher to try and present it in such a way. Um, I'm going to read the blurb and then John might read a, a little bit of Kurt Vonnegut's famous review relating to how this book was uh, packaged. Um, so this, we've got a blurb here which Matt and I compared blurbs and we worked out it's fundamentally the same one. So that, that's, yeah, this is like a corgi paperback from the mid-'70s. Bob Slocum is a promising executive. He has an attractive wife, three children, a nice house and as many mistresses as he desires. <laughs> <laughs> His life is settled. He has conformed. Society demands, therefore, that he should be happy or at least pretend to be, but the pretense is becoming more and more difficult as desolation, frustration and fear take over. It was the madness of war that inspired the magnificent lunacy of Catch-22. It is the malaise of modern America which prompts this brilliant novel, a book as splendidly unique as its predecessor. <laughs> I mean, in a way, splendidly unique. And they're trying to say, you know, it's, it's, it's iconoclastic and it's satirical. But, John, the, the Vonnegut review sort of gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? There's, there's so many great bits of the Vonnegut review. I mean, he describes it as black humour indeed with the humour removed, (laughs) which is a a feeling. I'll just read you a little bit. There will be, he says, Kurt Vonnegut, a molasses-like cautiousness about accepting this book as an important one. It took more than a year for Cratch 22 to gather a band of enthusiasts. I myself was cautious about that book. I am cautious again. The uneasiness which many people will feel about something happened has roots which are deep. It's no casual thing to swallow a book by Joseph Heller, for he is, whether he intends to be or not, a maker of myths. One way to do this, surely, is to be the final and most brilliant teller of an oft-told tale. And he goes on to say, the proposed myth in Something Happened is that those families, the families of middle-class veterans of the Second World War, 
uh, were pathetically vulnerable and suffocating. It says that the heads of them commonly took jobs which were vaguely dishonourable or at least stultifying in order to make as much money as they could for their little families, and they used that money in futile attempts to buy safety and happiness. The proposed myth says that they lost their dignity and their will to live in the process. And he goes on. I mean, obviously, I've got a bit. I've got a bit here, John. Yeah. I, I, this is the. Bit, I mean, this. We've all read this review. Yeah. I think. Is this book any good? Yes. Yeah, it great. is splendidly put together and hypnotic to read. It is as clear and hard-edged as a cut diamond. Mr. Heller's concentration and patience are so evident on every page that one can only say that something happened is at all points precisely what he hoped it would be. (laughs) This book may be marketed under false pretenses, which is all right with me. I have already seen British sales promotion materials, which suggest that we have been ravenous for a new Heller book because we want to laugh some more. This is as good a way as any to get to people to read one of the unhappiest books ever written. <laughs> well, I, mean, yeah, I mean, Heller responded, didn't he? He said that he thought that Catch-22 was the best book he'd written, and then when he read really? that review, he thought he that something happened. Was it is, and it's great. I love it, and he also says he's counting on a backlash. He expects Vonnegut younger readers to love Robert Slocum on the grounds that he couldn't possibly be as morally repellent and socially useless as he claims to be. (laughs) What's interesting about that review is you get the feeling that Vonnegut's battling with how depressed he is from the novel. He says at the top, doesn't he, something like, life has become very small now that I've read this book. It's like a Mm. grave. Life has become like a grave. grave, yeah. Yeah. And at the end he says something about I can't that he can't laugh. It's so he's supposed to be laughing at this book, but in actuality it tells you that oh, I can't remember well, it exactly. As far, but... as far as I know, though, Joseph Heller is the first major American writer to deal with unrelieved misery at That's novel it. length. Yeah. yeah. Now the thing is, we people might be listening to this and thinking, oh, why, why would we want to read that <laughs> yeah. answer? Because it's artistically, what Vonnegut says, which sounds like a backhanded compliment, is true. That Heller set himself this task, but it is quite funny too. Thing. It yeah. is funny, it is and it's absurd. Fun. It's yeah. a triumph yeah. of sort of absurdity yeah. made large, isn't it? And it's it, he does something. It's, it's important to say he does something. I think so audacious at the end of the book that that you almost, and we were not going to say what it is, but that that it's almost it does make you think. It, it, it does make you rerun the whole narrative again. I think, and 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 and. and he, the fact that he's prepared you, there's a great review um, from a few years ago making a claim for this as being one of the, the great, greatest novels of the 20th century by uh, critic Carmen Pataccio in the LA Review of Books. And it, it says, works before and after something happened have played with a similarly paradoxical magic, creating a presence out of absence, crushing their characters' hopes and certainties as a way to provide their readers with certainty and hope. And there is that strange cathartic mm. feeling mm. that by m- making this book so dark and hopeless because I mean without giving too much away Slocum doesn't you know you think the usual thing is you have a bad character and the bad character gets judged and the bad character doesn't the Slocum at the at the end of the book is very similar to the Slocum yes the it's, the it's interesting I mean uh, it's funny that we were talking about the ending because I, I remember one time uh, I went in to meet with a with a film company and they said um 
what what book would you like to adapt? You know, go for something really big. We've got an unlimited budget. We're well, not unlimited. We've got a big budget. We could buy you a book for you to adapt. And I said, oh, I want to do something happened. And they said, oh, hello, that's really exciting. Yes, you know. And then I, so they said, what's it about? And I told them what's about. And I could see they weren't that interested, but they were still going. Okay, tell us a bit more. What happens at the end? And I told them what happened at the end. And she crossed off the 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 name of the book in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> But that end, ending is so interesting without giving it away um, because it, you, you do want to sort of laugh and cry at the same yeah. time. Like you genuinely feel for him even as he he's doesn't won. redeem he's, himself. He's, he's, and Heller, the novelist, has won. He's, got mm-hmm. you into, he's beaten you up. Yeah. You do yeah. feel for him. Mike, let's hear another clip. There's a clip here. This is Heller talking about what he was trying to do with the structure of the novel. Most of what's happened in each book has taken place before the beginning of the book and the character... Uh, uh, in your side, and I am the main character, and I will bring the reader back to certain events each time. Adding, it's a structure that William Faulkner used very well. I, I didn't originate it. Uh, and something happened. I'm more concerned with the workings of a mind, particularly memory. I think memory is the biggest character in something happened, and uh, the, the the organization of something happened works the way I imagine memory works in other people. And as we keep returning to certain periods in our life. A life. There may be four, five, or six, or certain uh, certain people who, for one reason or another, made very deep impressions on us as we grew up, as a child, as an adolescent, as as a young man, and consequently, a slocum uh, with memory as the transporting device will return to things in his past and work with his present and future as well. So in that sense, themes are repeated. And I really had a sense of music, more so with something happened than with Catch Twenty Two, and also a sense of a, of, of an artist's palette very much conscious of spatial relationships of the themes and ideas and something happened. It's that thing I was talking about, about him, how he does this fascinating thing of, because the book is layered like in the way he describes, that he slides in from subject to subject. Sometimes, Sometimes he'll spend 30 pages on it. Sometimes mm-hmm. he'll spend half a page on it when he's been talking about something else. Yeah. The idea in your memory that you kind of anxiously return at four in the morning to something you said 30 years mm-hmm. ago mm-hmm. that you still feel embarrassed it, it, about, but you'll never be free of. It is musical like that. They keep the recapitulation of themes that are coming, the speech that he, that he doesn't get to give <laughs> at the, at the, uh, at the yeah, conference. Yeah. Yeah. And that even little phrases, I mean, he, you know, I think Vonnegut uses that fantastic thing. He's sort of tapping on a bit of metal mm. kind of and creating creating this sort of this sort of carapace of 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 huge kind of it's a, it's a it's a massive book which not very much happens in yeah i mean i tried to think of, to look at the plot this time because i hadn't, when i read it again and i you know i thought that the office politics in it were a bit more structured than they were because you know there is this thing about him wanting a promotion and and that sort of set up at the beginning about him taking over the job but that doesn't really go anywhere. You don't get anything back from that for about another 400 pages. Mm. And instead of which, he, he focuses on details like the the woman he wanted to sleep with when he when he started at the Virginia. office who yeah. committed suicide. You know, and, so he goes, and he goes after that. He re- re- recapitulates that again and again. That doesn't comes back and worries it away. And that that I mean, really terrible. I was thinking of Black Mirror actually, where there's a, the thing where you're in somebody else's head and the rape scene. Yeah. Go, I don't yeah. want to be. I don't want to be having to be mm. in this room watching this woman kind of effectively be on the point of rape, I mean, without, again, giving... That rape seems very interesting. Because I think he's using it to... um, Heller's using it to make him sympathetic, uh, Slocum, because he does intervene, just like he 
when he's about to bash the guy whose job he's going to take. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's actually looking after him and saying, don't wear these weird clothes to the office. Try and keep your job because he's angry that he's going to be promoted and take mm, his job. Mm, and mm. I think that there's sort of classic attempts to make us sympathise with him. But he regrets even though, it, though, doesn't he? he yeah, doesn't... but with the, with the rape scene, it's very nuanced because mm, at the mm. end he, he says... He? Yeah, he reverses it. At the end he says... So he intervenes and screams. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And so he sort of saved her from the rape. And then he says, but was I a fool that I didn't make her put mm. out to yes. three people mm. and be mm. one of them? Yeah. Which is incredibly harsh. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. she he, he goes to see her and he says, I wanted her to be more grateful than I thought she would be yeah, to yeah. me saving her with that scream. And instead she was back to being cheerful and doing what she obviously had to do to survive, yeah, which yeah. is just start flattering everyone yeah. in the office again, They're even all... though she's just escaped a rape situation. At various points in this book, I said it made me uncomfortable. One of the things that I was thinking while I was reading it, it was, oh, my God. You could walk into a bookshop and buy this in 2018. It's potential to cause offence, which must have been significant when it was published, mm, mm. has multiplied oh, yeah. now. And I, I, it made me think, you know... I, a lot of trigger warnings. I, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I like, and I like a bleak book, right? I like Gene Reese and Hubert Selby. Welbeck, I'm a big Welbeck fan, Welbeck who cops a lot of flat. This makes Welbeck look like Val Dooning, <laughs> right? In terms of the, the bleakness and the willingness to say almost anything. Yeah. But as you've just said, Nikisa, within a framework... It's quite, that- yeah, and I think that that section on rape, I looked at it a few times, it's quite interesting. Heller's not condoning it. He's yeah. trying to be honest about Slocum. He looks sympathetic and then he isn't sympathetic and it's that honesty. It's just going that one step further and saying... Or am I the fool mm, for doing mm. it? And why isn't she more grateful? Well, it is a sort of total nihilism as well, though, isn't there? You know, there's that thing about all these... You could think of the fact that it's... You know, the back of the book's saying, oh, look, there's a novel with lots of mistresses. That will be exciting. Yeah. But he hates <laughs> sleeping with the mistresses. You know, it's like yeah. the worst thing it's in the world. He's just on and on and on capital, about, you, I don't want yeah. to have to sleep with another one of my mistresses. <laughs> this is the worst thing in the world. You I mean, know, the, the basic... <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, the reversal thing. He, he kind of despises his wife for becoming the person that he's turned her into... And, and, and hating the fact that he that she's allowed him to do that. that, that the, the double think is there all the way through. Especially at the way in which she approaches him sexually. He doesn't mm, like that, mm, but he the, claims to have taught her that. that. You, you know, you can't go... You have to mention Derek, the, 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 yes. the severely mentally handicapped child that they have, who he, they just... All the book is about. Should we even get rid, get rid of it? I mean, it's so brutal. It's so it's it's. it's... <laughs> My man is laughing. I'm trying not to laugh. But what's trigger, making Laura, Laura, trigger warning. But, no, what's, no, but what's making me laugh is out of respect for hell. Hell has put that in his book. And he's put it as a constant thing yeah. to come back to, to make the reader go, for fuck's sake. The lack of I compassion do, for that particular you do character. Feel, you do feel a bit nervous. No one, no one who's got children has not had the daddy stop shouting. I'm not shouting. Yes. I'm yeah. just raising my voice to, be, to make emphasis, which he goes through all the time. It's the yeah. most brilliant family argument. But that technical thing as well, you know, the... the boy who he wants to get rid of, Derek, is the only one who's named. So he says, my son, we don't find out their name, my daughter, but then you find out Derek's name. So that has a weird effect to Mm. it as well. You know, there's a... Heller was talking about the musical element, about the the fugal element. Um, And the way way that when often scenes will reach kind of crescendos of prose and then slide off into other subjects... 
So he has this weird... There's a little bit I'd like to read here which does that, which which I think, um, listeners, if you want to just go and make a cup of tea for a minute, you might you might want to do that. Here we go. And there you have my tragic chronicle of the continuity of human experience, of this great chain of being and the sad legacy of pain and repudiation that one generation of Slocums gets and gives to another, at least in my day. I got little, I gave back less. I have this unfading picture in my mind, this candid snapshot, ha ha, and it can never be altered as I have a similar distinct picture of my hand on Virginia's full loosely bound breast for the first time or the amazingly silken feel of the tissuey things between her legs the first time she let me touch her there of this festive family birthday celebration in honour of my little girl, at which my old mother and my infant daughter are joyful together for perhaps the very last time. And there I am between them, sturdy, youthful, prospering, virile, fossilised and immobilised between them as though between bookends, without knowing how I got there, without knowing how I will ever get out, saddled already with the grinding responsibility of making them and others happy, when it has been all I can do from my beginning to hold my own head up straight enough to look existence squarely in the eye without making guileful wisecracks about it (laughs) or sobbing out loud for help. (laughs) Who put me here? How will I ever get out? Will I ever be somebody lucky? What decided to sort me into precisely this slot? What the fuck makes anyone think I am in control, that I can be any different from what I am? I can't even control my reverie. Virginia's tit is as meaningful to me now as my mother's whole life and death. Both of them are dead. The rest of us are on the way. I can almost hear my wife or my second wife, if I ever have one, or somebody else saying, won't you wheel Mr Slocum out of the shade into the sunlight now? I think he looks a little cold. (laughs) Oh, it's genius, though, as an arrangement of rhythm and prose. It's brilliant. If somebody starts listening now, they're going to think, what happened to Andy? (laughs) 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 You fully inhabited that role. I'm not going to read. There's another bit I wanted to read. And while we've been talking, I think, you know what? If I read this out loud, I would actually find it almost too painful to read there's a section where he's talking about his uh his mother when elderly which Um, i would not want to hear my own mother who to be fair does not listen to that (laughs) message but i would not want to hear my mum hear me reading those words out loud because probably because they have horrible grains of truth in them can i read a funny bit please the, the, the sort of balance to that um i was reading out bits to to uh to my wife Leslie as, as we're going along, and this this she said was this was an accurate reflection of our of our relationship. This bit, <laughs> I have it on her. It has nothing to do with love. It is more to do with hate. We hoard pillows. We have big, fluffy, soft ones now, and she steals mine when I'm asleep. Also, she sleeps better than I do, which arouses so much wrath in me that I can hardly sleep at all. And then she maintains she's been awake all night with heartburn, headache and humanitarian concerns over the well-being of others. I'm the one who's been awake. She won't stay in her part of the house, as my son and daughter prefer to do now. She won't answer the telephone, even though the calls are for her. When one call does come for me, she'll wait until I've been talking for 30 seconds and then pick up the extension breathlessly to shout, hello, we've run out of light bulbs. 
There is face to be saved in this tug of war, and I want to save mine. This is the one victory she cannot pluck away from me. I have the advantage because I do not care if she never says it to me, although I might begin to care if I felt she didn't. It was the hoarding of the pillows. You know, later on, he has that bit where he wants four more pillows than his wife and he wants to be up higher so he can look down upon her. But, you know, it's that kind of... I mean, the thing is, the marriage does function in the novel. I mean, obviously... He, yeah, and he's sort of... He, just when you're about to give up on Slocum, he kind of wins you back by doing something that's sort of... You know, all the way through the book, his head is inhabited by... You know, he's always trying to find himself the forsaken child. He's trying to find... He wants to... You know, when I grow up, I want to be a little boy. But I love this towards the end of the book. Cagle, who's one of the guys in the office, who's got <laughs> a bit... Cagle, Cagle is an amazing And then he wants to kick Cagle. Yeah. But he then, being <laughs> Slocum, he can't even own that. He says, the man who... Inside, my, inside he said, the man who wants to make me kick Kegel in the leg is a worldly relaxed fellow with black silk socks and a grey pinstripe suit. He's a man about my age with neatly trimmed white hair. He is little, of course. He has to fit inside. Even... Even, even all those sinister and gigantic ogres who've been menacing me in my nightmares all my life have been small. It's, it's just that I am so much smaller. He seems to know his way about the stone passageways of my brain much better than I do, for he reappears in different settings, often reading a newspaper with one ankle crossed comfortably over his knee, biding his time. He thinks he's got more time than I have. He hasn't. I think there's a sauna for many of the more affluent, better-bred occupants of my thoughts that seem the type that likes to scorch itself leisurely after playing squash. I suspect there's a homosexual haunt located somewhere secret. The shops are all about it, which wicked contraband is exchanged by grimy, unshaven men who know how. Grimy, unshaven men expose themselves to me and to children of both sexes and go unpunished. All crimes go unpunished. Oh. That's the inside of Slocum's head. <laughs> you know, the book that I, I, I really enjoyed... Then We Came to the End by Joshua Ferris. Mm -hmm. Yes. With which this has much in common. And, and I don't want to criticise... There's no criticism of that novel intended when I say this, but, you know, Then We Came to the End is in some ways like an easy-listening cover version yeah, of something yeah. happened, isn't it? I mean, it has, it has the, the, the tedium of office life mm, mm, mm. without quite the psychotic mm, kill-or-be-killed mm, element. Mm. It, I mean, it makes Don Draper... Yes, yes. Look, I mean, pathetically weedy. Although I think what, <laughs> I think Matthew Weiner must he must. I, I, I wondered that if he was yeah, influenced yeah. by and, it. Yeah. And that whole tra that sort of anti-hero uh, sort of tradition. I mean, the, 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 of, of, in long form drama, I think maybe Heller's in there. So this this character must. And be also that uh, character who he refers to as the twenty eight year old woman. Mm. She's sort of tall, blonde, and as he puts it, huge, just huge in every department. <laughs> and I wondered about the, that character. The, the one in, who's, in who gets laid Man. on the desk by the guy that goes down in, in the story. Do you think, I agree with you, John. We, we've all watched Mad Men, right? Yeah. I'm looking at all five of us around the yeah. table. Yes. Yeah. But Slocum does make, I mean, makes Don look like a pussy, really. Do you think so? I, so I don't know. know. Yeah, because... Mm. Because he doesn't... That's the point I was saying about... He doesn't enjoy any of this. You know, he's not... He's like Don Draper. Like Don yeah. Draper. But Don Draper does... 
enjoy it for a while, doesn't he? There's always there's a bit of kind but of. But so does he. He 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 enjoys it. He says about Virginia Slocum says. I, I was just grateful for whatever she gave me. I mean, he talks about other women with Virginia, but he's always grateful mm. for whatever happens in the cupboard, even though it's not the full works. Yeah, but Don Draper is a glamorous figure to begin You know, it, although he's got the history in the background, other people. He's think, not going to kick Kegel. He's not going to go around. I mean, there is a bit. There's that, there's well, a, there is that. There is that similar bit where he goes, in, he goes into the meeting and he says something to him. He says. Did that just happen? Oh, it must have done. Oh, it's the most boring dream I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a similar sort of thing. You know, he has that attitude. Yeah. I mean, basically, the similarity between them is they don't really care about their jobs and they hate their jobs and they hate the people around them. But I don't think anybody would identify with Slocum as a as a sort of hero in the same way. He doesn't have that kind of... You, you don't read this and think... God, I wish I lived in the 70s when people could do the, these terrible things. But if you like Mad Men, would you like this book? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the mood is very similar. I, no, you don't I think don't so? No, I don't know. That's, inter- that's I think interesting. This, I think this exposes the underbelly of Mad Men. So yes. I think, you know, yes. as we've, we've discussed, you're always thinking... I kept thinking back to Mad Men and how a lot of the things we accept as glamorous are actually quite hideous yes. in it and yes. we enjoyed them week on week. I guess I guess the difference would be, Matt, that Mad Men, yes, the underbelly, they weren't shy of showing you the unpleasantness of it while at the same time as making it nice to look at. Yes, yes. I don't feel this is nice to look at no. in the same way. I think the reading experience yes. is more, first, more difficult. Yes, It doesn't yes. slide down as easily. Yes. But grabbing by the pussy kind of culture, yeah. do you feel that this, yes. this is this is what that, that yes. kind of world Definitely. View, that yeah. champion world view yes. is it's, kind it's, of... But it shows the horror at the same time. You know, it doesn't it does, have a yeah, glamorous... Yeah. I mean, you don't think of Bob Sokum as an attractive man. You know, he describes himself as, uh, you know, all his physical ailments, all the things he's going for. Yeah, you're, you're constantly speak. wondering how he can sleep with whoever he wants in yes, the office. Yes. But he tells you that he can so confidently that you believe him. Well, you know, he says it's not going to last for much and longer, yet. doesn't he? He says it's like his hair's going to yeah. go soon. Yeah. And, you know, and he's not going to be able to keep functioning in this way, which yeah. is not something you would have ever seen in, in. You might have seen it in the secondary characters in Mad Men, but not in the in the male lead. He's outwardly successful, but his his inner life, mm, yeah, 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 <laughs> the stone passageways of his mind being inhabited yes, by yes. all these sort of strange. It reminded me in some places of uh, of uh, Beyond Black. You know, that thing of being of ghosts. You know, the ghosts mm, of the past inhabiting mm, him, mm, and, and, mm, and the, all the moaning, the wife yes, and the husband yes, moaning yeah, in yeah, the yeah, sleep, yeah, yeah. and him not waking her up. <laughs> you know, funnily enough, Andrew, our former guest Andrew Mail, um, when I told him that we were doing something happened by Joseph Heller, he said, "You know what? My feelings about." Something happened, and beyond black, almost exactly the same. It's a masterpiece. Please don't make me read it again. <laughs> uh, I would definitely read this again. I think. Yes, Matt. How many times have you read it? Do you know what? I read it endlessly as a in, in sort of eleven, twelve, thirteen, and it sort of went into my head. And I didn't read it again until I reread it for this. And after our conversation, mm. I just thought this is something that I would like to talk about. And um, I remembered it all almost verbatim it was there I can remember which on pages I mean I don't know whether it's because I hadn't read much at that time and it sort of stayed there but so I didn't I felt as if I was very familiar with it and And did it did it you think it influenced you as a writer oh absolutely yeah my my second novel eight minutes idol which was set in a call center and is about office 
life. I mean, it's very different because it's a a twenty-something guy rather than a, a you know a middle-aged uh, ad man. But that off the office politics was in there, um, and also just the rambling kind of thoughts, or hopefully not actually real rambling, but feeling like rambling mm. and having that kind of flexibility. That struck. I mean, it wasn't something I even consciously thought about, but it just felt as if it was it had been it stuck in my my brain and then came out. Later it's on. really interesting hearing that because I read it when it came out, Eight Minutes Idol, and I can see all the connections. It, I can, I can see how you would have been influenced by and, it now. And did you, if you hadn't read this one before, did you? It's a hard thing to say, but you, did you have preconceptions about it? Do you know much about it? No, I didn't know anything about this. So I had a lot of preconceptions about Catch Twenty Two when I read it in the. Mm speed reading way <laughs> and I, I wasn't really affected by it I just wanted to know as I say what the fuss was mm. about and I couldn't really I, I could see the format was inventive and I could see this idea of point of view that was going around was very interesting in Catch-22 and with this I just read it much more as a novel I, I, we were talking earlier about whether you see it as a, as a documentary of the time and I accepted a lot more than maybe many of you did when I read it, I accepted it as a document in the way that you accept yeah. Mad Men as a document mm. of what was going on in the office mm. and the way the secretaries were reliant on what yes. was happening with their bosses and not happy about it, consent, race, all those things. Mm. I read it with a kind of sense of this is what it was like, you know, mm. this is a documentary. Mm. So it's interesting to hear Heller talking about how he's created this crazy, unsavoury character. I know that we all accept that it's not a particularly savoury character. Uh, Vonnegut says that this about this book and Catch-22 taken together, Mr Heller's two novels, when considered in sequence, might be taken as a similar statement about an, an entire white middle-class generation of American males. My generation, Mr Heller's generation, Herman Wook's generation, Norman Mailer's generation, Owen Shaw's generation, and so on. So I think that idea of... I, I think that is a kind of the, the malaise, the condition mm-hmm. that he's trying to pin down. I was so we we, we have to stop in a minute. Yeah. I was kind of interested, but I I never think of Heller in the same bracket as Bellow, Updike, Roth. No. You know, those are those are the literary New York American male titans. In a sense, having read something happened. I can't understand why you would not put Heller yeah. in. Well, it's really people. interesting because when he when Heller died, Updike said something like he wasn't in the first order of American writers and he wasn't that particularly that great. And you could see he was very much deliberately, you know, separating him from from them. And I think that's because some of the later book, books that Heller wrote weren't as good. But I did want to say it's interesting that, you know, if you read Updike or Bellow or Roth, the kind of things that are being spoken about in this novel sort of satirically and, you know, critically, even though it's coming from a character, you know, you're not always aware that he's doing that, these sort of things are presented without apology in Updike and Roth and Bellow. You know, exactly, when, yeah. When they're talking about the the woman that they wanted to sleep with when they were younger and didn't happen, you're supposed to think, oh, God, you know, and totally identify with them. You're not supposed to have that with Slocum. That's, that, that's interesting you say that because there's, a, there's this remarkable ring of self-conscious irony and self-awareness whenever those things take place in this book, I think. And, you, yeah, you could say it's not dissimilar from a Philip Roth novel, and there's a lot of self-loathing in Philip Roth for thinking that way or being that way. I mean, his character is him, however you're going to separate it. But in this right from the start, right from the bit that you read from that page, 
you've got that self-awareness as a sort of elastic band around mm, mm, the mm. event that's being described. It's always there, I think. Mm, mm, Whenever he thinks about how he does, he's not attracted to his wife or how he wants to kill his son, those kinds of things. <laughs> he, he wants he, to kill all members. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always there, isn't it? Yeah, he's I mean, always presenting it. My wife it. isn't happy. My yeah. daughter is unhappy. <laughs> but, yeah. he's, you know, he's not an academic. He's not a writer. He's not yeah, any exactly. of the things that yeah. up, you know, Updike and, and Roth's no. character spellers are. He's an ad man. No, sorry, not an ad man. He's an insurance salesman. Yeah. yeah. We're going to take two votes very quickly, right? The first vote is, just for the hell of it, there are five of us gathered around this table. <laughs> Which novel do you prefer, Catch-22 or Something Happened? Raise your hand for Catch-22. Raise your hand for Something Happened. Unanimously carried by Something Happened. Okay, my second thing we're going to vote on, would you recommend our listeners read Something Happened by Joseph Heller? Yes. Raise your hand. It's not working for radio, this. <laughs> I think that's another It's unanimous. another unanimous, yes. We, we've talked a lot on this particular episode about how challenging this book is, but hopefully from what we've talked about, you've also heard we've laughed a lot and it's given us a lot to think about. And I think this is a magnificent book. It, it made me so unhappy while I was reading it, and I can't wait to read it again. I, 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 I realised. I agree, I agree, and I think, I think there's so much to unpack there. I will definitely go back. I think it, I think it dwarfs a lot, of, a lot of the novels by the, those other writers, I have to say. Yeah. I would say it's worth sticking to till you get to the end, yes, because that yes. actually transforms yes. the book in well, we, some you know, way. We, 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 we can't talk too much about the ending, because it gives a yeah. lot of it I, I, away, I, but it does, I mean... I, I, am loving, I am loving vintage trying really hard. To make it on their cover. A little bit more. <laughs> the years were too short, the days were too long, and then dot 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 something <laughs> happened. <laughs> the, the, it's quote, true. the quote something from does the Telegraph. Happen. A marvellously funny, sad, wise, rewarding book. I mean, yeah. it is all of those things. Something does happen though. It's yeah. important for listeners yes. to know that. <laughs> you might read it for four hundred pages and think nothing's happened. But this this <laughs> and this this time when I read it again, I had a totally different feeling about the ending than I did when I read it. Yeah. Before, I think that yeah. I think it is can be read in lots I, of ways. And I, yeah. I think that's true. But I think it, what it does is you realise that what he's he's engaged in something much more than you thought he was. And mm. Mm. So this, we're yeah, at yeah. the end now, and something well, is about to happen. Well, <laughs> as Bob Bloke, as Bob Sloker might say, it's time for us to move on. I don't want to move on. <laughs> uh, so we've got this episode's Unbound project worth backing is hashtag sonnets beautifully designed sequence of 155 Shakespearean sonnets, amusing Shakespearean sonnets on subjects such as Kim Kardashian, Tinder and Pikachu by the comedian Lucian Young. I was particularly drawn to sonnet number 14, entitled Walter White. Oh, Heisenberg, did not that shaven head contain the thought that thy wicked deeds could scar thee? Thou shouldst have taught thy chemistry instead of cooking crystal in some antique RV. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice rhyme. Good. It's a good rhyme. As ever, if you pledge for it or any of the other 364 Unbound projects currently live on the site, you backlisted listeners will get free postage on that pledge by entering the special code HELLA as you check out. That's H-E-L-L-E-R. Thank you to Matt. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you to Kate Nikita. Thank you. Thank you to our producer, Nikki Birch. To Unbound and to our colourful, fragrant sponsor, Bloom and Wild. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook, Backlisted Podcast, and our Unbound's online magazine, Boundless, unbound.com forward slash boundless. Also, if you felt like rating us on iTunes, five stars, or fewer. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
we'd be really pleased, and I'm going to add at this point, we're tantalisingly close to a highly significant star rating. Please, Mum, if you do, if you did, li- if you did listen to this one, anyone. This thank isn't you, the one anyone. For your mum to listen to. <laughs> no, that's what maybe. I don't not. want to get home. No. No, well, thanks for listening. I'm apologising to my father for laughing. Uh, He he thinks we laugh too much in this podcast. I wasn't expecting to laugh in this particular one. We'll be back in a fortnight until then. Goodbye. There are five people around this table. I am afraid of four of them. (laughs) It should be five of them. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisteds, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.